Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hey, what's up, friends? Welcome back to the show. I just had such a life-giving conversation with Pastor Trey Ferguson, the author of Theologizing Bigger. We talk a lot about imagination when it comes to dreaming of, of a better world and theology. We cover a lot of topics. Pastor Trey is great. I recommend the book highly. We're going to do more work in the future. So yeah, thank you so much, Trey, for coming on. And I think this interview is going to be really inspiring to dream again and that we as people trying to find better paths forward in our faith, have to reinvigorate our imaginations of a world that's possible that loves all of our neighbors. And, and Trey has some great thoughts on that. Of course, friends, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for supporting the work that we do. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share the episode, like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, download the episode if you're on podcasts, and a written review would be so helpful. It helps other people find the work that we do by being pushed through those pesty algorithms. And of course, if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as we try and find better paths forward in our faith that are rooted in the radical love of neighbor and not the fundamentalism of Christian nationalism and drawing tighter boundaries around who can be in and who can be out. Thank you so much for your support. I'm so grateful for all of you. I love that you're here. Thank you for trusting me to bring guests that I think are really helpful for your journey. Without further ado, here's the interview. Talk to you all soon. Hi, my name is Courtney. I live in London, United Kingdom, and I am a TNE monthly donor. I'm a domestic abuse survivor and was raised with John MacArthur and purity culture rhetoric. I left my abuser in September 2020, moving from LA to Southern Utah. I had been a Cali girl my whole life, so seeing the Christian nationalism and patriarchy present in Utah gave me quite a shock. During that time, I began deconstructing and making sense of my abuse and how my church upbringing and political affiliations contributed to it. It's a painful discovery that I'm still coming to terms with. I've never been a big believer in tithing, but you guys gave me a mission I can get behind. I hate that term now, but I don't know of any other more fitting. The U.S. is on a trajectory mirroring that of 1930s Germany. And if something isn't done soon to circumvent that, I worry what the repercussions would be not just for the U.S., but for the whole world. All right, Pastor Trey Ferguson, great to have you back on the show. You wrote a book, Theologizing Bigger, Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. It is out now. It is great to meet you. Again, we had some technical issues last time, but we're back now, ready to roll. Good to have you on the show. Hey, man, it's great to be here. And and all the technical issues just tell me to, it, we we in spiritual warfare right now. This They're they trying to stop this from happening, but they can't. They can't. I completely agree. Like you said before we they started recording, you know, yeah, right, exactly. Our battles against Wi-Fi routers, right, and extenders, as you said before we started recording. Yes. So it is. It's great to have you. Yeah, you know, give us kind of just a little intro. You're a pastor. You're an author. Where are you located? And 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 what got you into ministry? Most definitely, I'm in Homestead, Florida, which is in the southern portion of Miami-Dade County. 
right before you get to the Florida Keys is where you find me. I'm the executive pastor at the Refuge Church down here. Now, when you ask how I get into ministry, that, that's an interesting story, a, a long story, right? I grew up in church like a whole lot of us. And because I was not in a very high control environment or anything, I was one of them kids who kind of got to stop doing church eventually, right? In my adolescent years, my mother at one time asked me, she was like, oh, are you coming to church? And that was the first time there was ever a question. I was like, no, like just testing the water, seeing if it was allowed. Right. She was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. she left me, right? She, she left me at home that day. I was like, oh, snap. I, did, I didn't know that was a thing we could do. And so for the next probably five years of my life or so, I, I identified as a Christian because that's how I was brought up, but I wasn't really going to church or anything of the sort. And it wasn't until I met this girl in college who asked me to go to church with her. She wasn't she didn't grow up in a church like me. She wasn't churched to use our own language, right? But she had a curiosity about her and she asked if I would go with her. And because I liked her, I I went to church. And I ended up marrying her. And one of the things that came of that was me starting to go to church a little more regularly, asking more serious questions than I had during my previous stint as a child, you know. But at the same time, I had a foot firmly planted in a more secular world. I was at the University of Miami, you know, which is not a sectarian school at all. As a matter of fact, I think they have the first, the nation's first endowed chair for secular humanism and atheism. Wow. As a matter of fact, just, just that's, that's the world that I'm trafficking in. And uh, so I'm consistently being confronted with views that challenged a lot of the things that I had come up understanding and consistently asking questions and things of that nature. And eventually the church that I was attending at the time, the guy who was kind of over the youth ministry moved away. And I was like, oh snap, they're going to need somebody to rock with them. Do y'all need help there? And I started doing youth ministry a little bit and because I don't like doing anything halfway, consistently reading the Bible, consistently asking questions. And eventually actually became a minister. I put on a little preaching calendar every now and then. I graduated college eventually, and then I went straight to seminary. And somewhere along the line, I found myself actually being in ministry and this being what I do. Yeah. Wow. In the in the book, I talk about that seminary journey a little bit because it ain't, it wasn't exactly a straight shot from there, but yeah, we, we, we can get into some other stuff because I, mm. I, I spend two hours talking about this journey itself. Talk to me about the premise of the book, theologizing bigger. I mean, it seems to hint that maybe thinking about theology and therefore God in bigger ways than how we grew up. I'm not sure. I mean, I think you talked about last time I chatted with you, you grew up in the black tradition and I grew up definitely with, you know, white Jesus at the center, definitely the white evangelical framework. Yeah. But, you know, when I read the title, I think, yeah, like, like let, let's get beyond the basement of our upbringing and think about the, the bigger house. So what, what's for you, what's the premise of the book? Most definitely. I think you kind of hit it on the nose there. At the end of the day, we all inherit traditions wherever we are, whether you grew up in a black church tradition, whether you grew up in uh, white evangelicalism, whether you grew up in a mainline Protestant denomination or you're Orthodox or you're Roman Catholic, we inherit traditions. Whether you didn't grow up any of those things and you converted as an adolescent or an adult, there there is an inherited tradition. And I think that there's beauty in a lot of those traditions. But at the end of the day, the fullness of who and what God is does not dwell within any one particular tradition. And so my argument, the premise of the book here is that only in the thinking about God beyond what we've inherited can our faith grow beyond the constraints that a, a, a tradition will place on it. Because again, it's not 
an insult to any one particular tradition. We're all doing this thing in part. We're all grabbing fragments of who and what God is. And I think there's a lot of beauty to be grasped beyond wherever it is we find ourselves, including my own tradition, you know? You know, admittedly so, I'm I'm pretty ignorant on, on the Black tradition in the American context. So for you, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what what was your upbringing like in that tradition? And what are some of the things now that maybe you're either embracing more than ever or that you're pushing back on in the book? So the primary difference between the Black church tradition that I inherited and a lot of what gets talked about in terms of when we think of Christianity in the United States and in in particular in the West in general, is that the black church tradition often grants being black and the reality of being black in the United States as a valid starting point for discussions about God, right? There is not the same sense of, of neutrality and colorblindness. Like, no, we recognize certain realities and that births things like the liberation theology of, of James Cone and the like. Cause like, no, what, what does God have to say about what we're facing? What, what does God have to say about that? And even before that was something that was named before black liberation theology was crystallized or whatever, there was always a prophetic element to the black church tradition. Now I need to be clear in saying that's not every single black Christian. That's not every, it's not even every black congregation that has this liberative and subversive element to it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the fact that a separate black church exists at all attests to the fact that at one point that we're not allowed to worship <laughs> on equal footing with, with white people, right? There is heritage there that, that I've inherited just by virtue of being a black Christian in the United States. So that is something that I don't shy away from. I don't try to erase that or look past that chapter. I incorporate it in how I approach God and the things that I've inherited. When you ask about how that impacts how I'm approaching faith now and um, the things that I want to move beyond, what does it mean that this idea of God as a liberator, God is one who was grieved by the plight of my ancestors and desired to move on their behalf. What does that mean for other people who are experiencing marginalization or injustice in other ways, right? And so for me, a lot of what that means is how does the hermeneutic that led to the subjugation of my ancestors, how does that impact, or the interpretation of the Bible that, that does that, how does that impact gender relations? How does that impact our view of sexuality and things of all that nature? And that's where the, that's what theologizing bigger looks like for me. Like if I am to be consistent in how I'm interpreting the Bible in this area, what would that look like for me in other areas? What does it look like if God doesn't just care about me being a black person, but somebody else being in need for, from another area? Yeah, that that's helpful. You know, I am someone that I really try and stay in my lane. You know, like I can I feel really comfortable critiquing the white evangelicals. That's my faith tradition. We have a lot of problems and Christian nationalism is a real issue, et cetera. I also yeah. have interviewed people who have come from the, the black church tradition, broadly speaking, and they kind of have similar themes of like, hey, I really am grateful for learning about, you know, the liberation of the oppressed and, 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 and understanding that my tradition did not sugarcoat what's happening to people, you know, like me. But also I've heard some, maybe we can call them loving critiques, that sometimes it stopped there and didn't expand beyond yeah. other marginalized groups, including maybe, you know, uh, gender inequality or even queer inclusion. Yeah, and I think that's very fair because at the same time that we recognize that the black church tradition 
views being black as a valid starting point for doing theological work. We got to understand that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. The black church also exists because white Christians brought Christianity or, or sometimes forced Christianity on black people. And so, like I said, none of this happens in a vacuum. There are certain things and certain interpretations that we've inherited. And if we inherit a patriarchal faith from white Christians of the time, we carry that with us. Now, the fact that we didn't like segregation and, and being enslaved and all of those things, the fact that that changes, I think that that motivated us to address these things. But I think it's perfectly fair to question whether or not we were consistent in applying that to all of the hierarchies that our faith bequeathed on us. I think it's, I think it's fair to critique whether or not there is more work to do. And my argument is absolutely like, yeah, if, if we can see a God who is not okay with reading the Bible in this way on, on these matters, then we got to be able to see a God who is consistent across the board. Right. It can't like liberation can't look like access to the levers of power. We, we can't be liberated just to do to other people what was done to us that that's where i mm. land on this and so when yeah. it comes to being like critical of our own faith traditions i think there, there's definitely a whole lot of room right there and i honestly think that the tradition that we've inherited gives us the tools to do that i think that there is a prophetic voice and a prophetic critique embedded within our own tradition that allows us to say these things yeah, you know, I, I I think that's really good, and I'm learning too that that everyone, every faith tradition, kind of has their own people calling them to account. You know, there's a reason why I don't really critique Islam a whole lot, right? Because there are people in those spaces who are calling out their own, saying, "Hey, maybe some of this right. fundamentalist expression is really unhelpful." And also, I feel like, especially coming from the white evangelical tradition, there's such a baked-in ethos of like, "Oh, as a Christian, I have the power to speak into things." because I have like some secret knowledge of God that no one else has. And that can get, especially white Theo bros who look like me and talk like me sometimes, that can get yeah. us in a lot of trouble, right? Because we're, we're, we're so busy critiquing everyone else that we can't even acknowledge the massive log in our own tradition. So I think what you're saying is, is really helpful and also a good reminder that, you know, no particular group or tradition is perfect. They all have their opportunities that we have an obligation right. to push with mutuality for better ways forward that, fight for all of our our neighbors, so to speak. In, in the book, part one, you call the Bible, and you break it down as an acronym, Books Inspired by Life Experiences. I like that. Talk to me about the Bible. I mean, I, I'm, I'm also, I'm in the middle of writing a book that will come out sometime next year. I did a chapter on the Bible. Oh, it, was really, it was really challenging because my faith tradition was kind of like this all or nothing, right? Either, either the Bible is the objective word of God or we have no basis for truth. And I'm like, okay, there's got to be some messy middles here. How do you talk about the Bible in the book and, which, and how do you view the Bible now compared to maybe how you grew up around it? Yeah, so I think for the most part, I come from a tradition that values biblicism, right? Like the Bible plays a very big role in my faith, much like it would in white evangelicalism. There's not yeah. a big difference in the ways that we approach the Bible. But I think that people who have the right intentions gave us an idea or a concept of the Bible that didn't necessarily do it justice, right? The reason that there's the acronym there is because a lot of us have heard the, the basic instructions before leaving <laughs> Earth acronym for the Bible. Oh, no, I've never which, heard that before ever. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, that'll, that'll really make sense, right? Like, what, 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 and if you read the Bible instructions, anything that can be reasonably 
received as instructions make up a very, very tiny portion of it, right? We're ignoring a large part of the Bible if all we're taking from this is instructions. It's the vast majority of the text in there is, is not that. And so we got to deal with the fact, like, like I said, this is all or nothing proposition when people say, oh, like either the Bible is all of this. And some people ask you, like, do you believe the Bible? This is a simple question. I'm like, no, it really isn't. That's, that's as simple a question as do you believe the library? What do you mean by that? Do I believe that the Bible is what? Right. Like it, it this is not all the same thing. And we lose something when we forget or do not like wrestle with or articulate when we cannot articulate what the Bible is, that it's a collection of various texts in various genres written by various authors over a period of at least 1500 years. And that these texts are the text and and the writings that a, a community viewed as sacred. And we talk about it as the revealed word of God and all that stuff, but that doesn't negate anything that I just said. And when you do that, if you look at the Bible as an anthology or a library, now you have permission to go in there and be like, okay, so what is this book trying to communicate? What is this letter trying to communicate? Is it a lesson? Is it trying to communicate emotions? Is it trying to, and all of these various things happen. So when I say books inspired by life experiences, I'm restoring the humanity of the Bible. I think we do a disservice when we act as though God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just possessed some people and overtook their bodies and they scribbled some lines on the paper. No, God is using people who are experiencing the presence of God or sometimes even the lack thereof. The people Mm -hmm. who are saying, no, where is God? And some of those things make it into the Bible. When we do that, I think we have... We give ourselves license to continue the process of looking for God, thinking about God, wrestling with God, writing about God, talking about God. When we recognize that the books of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, but also inspired by people experiencing things in life, tragedies in life, triumphs in life, all of these different things. I think for me, it makes the Bible come alive in a different way. I, I, I want to, I totally agree. And here's what's so interesting. This is what really baffles me. Even more fundamentalist type of teachers, like Elisa Childers, has said from, from her platforms that, that she doesn't believe that like the, the biblical authors were, were in a trance writing what God wanted them to write. So the, even fundamentalists will acknowledge that like there wasn't this takeover of the Holy Spirit in that way, but what they wrote is somehow, you know, objectively true and et cetera. So it, it kind of falls apart because I find what you just said, not only to be a more truthful understanding of the Bible that we have based on, on the work of, of scholars who have done that tedious work to unpack what is the Bible, but also it helps us make more sense of where the Bible sits in our life. Because, yes. you know, I, I always wrestle in this tension of the Bible for me, Definitely parts of it are authoritative. The gospel accounts, the Beatitudes, I see them as authoritative for my life. How do I love my enemy? How do I do those things? But there are other parts where it's like, no, I don't think that we should stone our neighbor caught in adultery. No, I don't think that we should be doing those things. And I feel like for the fundamentalists and maybe for my faith tradition, it was like, even though they said we have to take the Bible as God's word, they also would interpret certain things that seem like commands why they're and explain why they're not, why they're not relevant today but we couldn't call it picking and choosing but the reality is that you know we all are i think a better word is negotiating pete ends might say discerning how we relate to the text and we do 
use a litmus test of factors, right? We use culture, context. We try and understand what the original context was. We try and think about what are the challenges right now as 21st century Americans, right? With, with, with our current slate of issues that we're all navigating. How we see the Bible is influenced right. by all of those things. And that's not a bad thing. That's just reality. Yeah. But no, I, I don't, I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. And to your point, for the vast majority of Christian history, we have accepted a diversity of opinions as a norm, right? That's why there are so many, like, even before all of the schisms, there are different orders of Catholicism, right? There, there are different, different ways of approaching these, these texts that we all call sacred or whatever. When, People insist on the Bible being the word of God in this way and the perspicuity of scripture. And what is often being communicated is that there is an, an interpretation that has been baptized and authorized by God, by the creator of heaven and earth. And what they are often trying to communicate is that we are the stewards of the ordained interpretation of these ancient sacred texts. And I think the tragedy in that is that it is a very prideful posture. Mm -hmm. It robs us of the humility necessary to enter into this text and be transformed by the risen savior whose very life was spent shedding new light on ancient traditions. Right. And so I don't have a problem with people interpreting the text differently than I do or regarding things differently. Or, or What I do have a problem with is people then rushing to accuse others of being false teachers or having deficient theologies because somehow, some way, for the first 1,400 years of Christianity, everybody was wrong until a few reformers <laughs> came and, and figured out Christianity the right way. That doesn't make that doesn't wait, make any I, sense, right? Wait, that makes complete sense, though. You don't understand how Martin Luther had a, a divine calling by God himself, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. No, I, I, I want to just reiterate and say I totally agree. And people often ask, well, then, like, like, how do we interpret the Bible? I mean, I think through the lens of love and through the lens of Jesus. I think yeah. Jesus, at least for the Christian, right, the little Christ, can we start with the Gospels? Can we start with the Beatitudes and use that as our main framework for how we see the text around the Scriptures? Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket. Let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's thesrf.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. 
I want to dive in for a little bit to your other part of your book that talks about the white man's religion. I, I, I am <laughs> still, I tell people often, I am still very new to this work myself. I'm still working on my own decolonization, trying to understand how embedded really in the American context, white supremacy and white Christianity is into how we see the world. So I'm not claiming to be an expert here. I'm, I'm still reading and still learning, but I will say that I have been realizing more and more just how true that really is and how things like Christian nationalism are really fueled by a long legacy of white Jesus, yeah. so to speak, that has influenced this perspective of the text and of the tradition that some people are called to be in charge because God gave them authority and then everyone else is underneath of them to order things rightly. How do you talk about the white man's religion in the book? Give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think for me, this is something like I, I joke about the white man's religion because um, in my context, when one of the hurdles that a lot of people doing ministry among black people often face is that there are people who, who, who won't come to church because they have been taught that Christianity is the white man's religion. Mm. And the fact of the matter is in our American context, they are not incorrect, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? What right. we have received and what we are sharing is an ancient faith that has been filtered through a lens of whiteness, of white European theologians, of white supremacy even. So much so that I know Dr. Jamar Tisby talks about it in The Color of Compromise a little bit. I think Andrew Whitehead in American Idolatry also points to this um, yep, a little more recently yep. about the fact that in early colonial America and even into what eventually became the United States, white and Christian were almost synonyms. And one of the things that happens as they decide or wrestling with whether or not uh, black people or the descendants of Africans as well as Native Americans can become Christians is now if they can become Christians, are we still allowed to enslave them and do all of these things to them? And the problem that this presents is that as they finally decide to start allowing some of these people to become Christians or whatever, what they've set up is this this paradigm in which becoming Christian means you're becoming more white. You're becoming closer to like, you can never be there. We can still look at you and see a difference, but like there's this sliding scale in which to be white is to be Christian, to be Christian is to be white and to be black or native or anything other is to be heathen. Like that, that language is peppered throughout the letters and the sermons of the time and the missionary work that that much is very apparent. And we have to ask ourselves, how has this impacted the actual theology? Have we actually done the reflection necessary to rebut any claim about whether or not this is a white man's religion? Because I'm not talking about the theology of Christianity in a vacuum. I'm talking about what we have right here. All theology happens in a context, right? Religion is ultimately about the significance that we ascribe to stories, to signs, to people. That's always going to happen within a cultural context. That's why the Christianity that is practiced right here is going to differ from the Christianity that's practiced in Istanbul, right? Uh, all of these different places. 100%. And at the end of the day, what is largely true is that the majority of Christianity that is practiced in the United States is shaped by a legacy wherein people decided it got it ordained the slaughter of indigenous populations for the expansion of the United States. The people have decided that God had ordained the transatlantic slave trade, which led to the prosperity of America. Those things like that, that is what it is. Right. And then 
the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, was founded for the express purpose of defending the, the rights of enslavers to serve as missionaries. We have to ask ourselves, what about their hermeneutic led them to that conclusion? That's to, right. to the extent that they were willing to split a denomination and a denomination, by the way, that predates the Confederate States of America by about a dozen years, where the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention also served as chaplains for the Confederate armies. Those things are not coincidences. The, the Like these people literally laid the theological groundwork and foundation for the Confederate States of America and then outlasted the Confederacy. It's almost like as if Hydra in the Marvel Universe, how yeah. they outlasted the Third Reich. It's the same thing. Yes, it's the same yes. thing we're dealing with, right? Good way of putting but it. The, the question then becomes, and what I like to ask people to consider sometimes is, have we addressed how the hermeneutic led them astray then, and if it has been adjusted in the present? Or did they use the same hermeneutic that led to that schism and the Civil War? Is that the same hermeneutic that led them to oppose desegregation? Is that the same hermeneutic that is undergirding biblical manhood and womanhood? Is that the same hermeneutic that is like uh, undergirding all of these things? Is that the same lens, the same interpretational framework? And when I talk about the white man's religion, I'm talking about the federal land. No, this is all related. These cultural constructs that we have that we pretend are all biblical or all ordained by God. that, That is, yes, very religious because religion is what people do. But are we taking Jesus for what Jesus is worth, or are we letting people put filters on Jesus for us? I completely agree. In fact, you know, you don't realize how deep, deeply embedded this stuff is. Even hymns, right? White as snow. This idea of white being the standard and black representing sin and darkness, etc. In fact, you know, listen, this is embarrassing to say, but I used to be a, I used to work for one of the largest children's ministries in the world. I was one of their, they call them Christian Youth in Action. And we taught the wordless book and there was a white page and there was a black page and the white page represents Jesus and purity and goodness. And the black page represents sin and death. And again, like me at 15, I'm not thinking about it in racialized categories. I'm just thinking about, you know, this equates to sin and this equates to God. But when you start in friends, I want to emphasize I don't have a PhD in this stuff. I just read a few books from people like Jamar and so on. But just just a light cursory reading of some of these history books and the legacy of racism in America, you start realizing, oh, I've I've taught things that are rooted in these ideas from a hundred or so years ago without even yeah. realizing that I'm reinforcing something subconsciously. You know, this idea that white is associated with purity. And black is not. And so I, I completely, yeah, I, I agree. I think what you said is really wise. Yeah. And even from like a practical standpoint right now, right? There are lots of people who get uncomfortable around me because they say, oh, he's a black liberation theologian, which is, first of all, not something I personally identify as. I don't run from the label, but I've never called myself that, right? Yeah, right. It's like but when folks call me a progressive idea. Christian. I'm like, I'm not going to run from yeah. it, but like, I don't really, I, I, that has problems in yeah. and of itself, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. People are like, oh, a progressive pastor. I'm like, oh, you haven't yeah. been to my church, huh? So, um, <laughs> but, but there's this, this idea that like black liberation theology is inherently dangerous. We have to watch out for James Cone because that's, he's not about the guy. He's, he's bifurcating these things. And I'm like, okay, let me ask you a question. And I, I wrote this little piece a while ago where I argued that <laughs> Martin Luther and John Calvin were white liberation theologians, white, right? I was like, why is it that everybody else has to wear their label that we are automatically suspicious of anybody unless they are these guys? Like the only people who get to do regular theology are 
white dudes from the 16th century and the people who followed them. Yeah, right? exactly. And now I know like there, there are people who will be, they can name their favorite black theologians. There's two of them, right? There's, there's Vadi Bakum and, and, and another one. And that's, that's cool. I, I get it. You, you can name some black people who, who go with that, but it's only in people ignoring the fact that they're black. that We feel comfortable around them. Why is it that we are perfectly fine celebrating theologians who talked about the fact that no America is a white Christian nation and that the, the natural place of the black people is underneath white people. They were fine at admitting differences between race. Their, their theology is perfectly fine and non-suspect, but the moment a black person acknowledges their full humanity, now, now we have to be suspicious about it. And when you look at it like that, like, oh yeah, th- there is a white man's religion under the name of Christianity. I'm not calling it a false Christianity because I don't believe in policing the boundaries of Christianity in that way, 100%. but it's white people stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, you know, Dr. Adam Clark, who was mentored by James Cone, he says often, you know, it's not Christianity, it's Christianities. Like, yes, there are different yes. streams of Christianity. And, you know, yeah. at first when I was new to this work, I'm like, I don't know. We want just the one true faith kind of vibe. But the more I've been reading and looking and listening, I'm like, no, there really are different streams. I mean, right now I'm going through a book called A Fever in the Heartland. It's about the KKK in the early 20th century. And I'll tell you what, that was a Christian driven organization. They were convinced that God has given them a white supremacy complex. But then you have people who were like, no, you know, my Christianity says absolutely not. And so you have very divergent views all across the Christian spectrum, right? The same Christianity, singular, I guess we can say, or the same tradition that, that, that gave birth to the doctrine of discovery was also used by people to say, no, actually we're being oppressed by this. We have to resist it. Right. So like it, it is that kind of dichotomy where I think a lot of us, is, and I, I, I can't speak on behalf of people who grew up in the black church. It's not my experience, but I could definitely say those in the white church in particular, I could definitely say that a lot of us were conditioned to believe we just need the true faith, the true gospel. But even that comes from somewhere, even that has a cultural context to it, even that has a hermeneutic. And I think the dangers I hear from people all the time online, it drives me crazy, is when they go, oh, those other Christians aren't true Christians. No, 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 no. Because what that does is that absolves us from the responsibility of calling out our own, right? When we, dis- when we dismiss them as not true Christians, first off, who are we to make that call, especially right. considering how many of them do profess orthodox beliefs, quote unquote. But we're also saying, well, it's not my responsibility to hold them accountable when they advocate for these policies in the the name of God. And that, to me, is very problematic. Yeah, and it's also the other other aspect of that, oh, they're not real Christians. Okay, now you're doing PR, right? You're doing doing brand damage control, which I get from somebody who, who... who got to sell books every now and then. I get that aspect. But the other thing is, who said we were supposed to do that, right? Like, First, Jesus never says, oh, protect the name of Christianity. The three times that we see Christianity appear in the New Testament, none of them are in a clearly positive context. So what was actually being done is that we have somebody referring to Christians by what was in effect an epithet at the time. Now, we've since reclaimed that, kind of like black people do with the N-word. But at the end of the day, why are we now policing like, oh, like that'd be like, oh, that ain't no real, like, <laughs> if, if I were talking about who is and isn't black. Like, no, why would I be interested in policing who is and is not this, this thing that mean, that has meant so many different things over time? Am I going to say that the Catholic church of, of the 11th century wasn't real because the crusades happened under their watch? Right. Are we going to say like, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw and the we line? have to, we have to accept the fact that Christianity 
or Christian, the word Christian is an amoral descriptor. There's no morality accepted with it. It yes. is about the beliefs that we profess with our mouths. Now we can judge whether or not people are authentic in their profession. Sure. But I don't know why we would call them fake Christians. It's not as though we have the most stellar brand throughout history. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with you a thousand percent. I, I am just learning more and more how complicated this Christian tradition is and we could use oh, yeah. it as a tool for liberation or for a weapon of oppression. And God knows yeah. we've seen what happens when it's used as a weapon for oppression. You know what I mean? And so, so let's tie this back to theologizing vigor. I mean, I just love the title. I love that it invites imagination and invites wonder and invites dreaming of a better way forward. And again, you know, friends, maybe some of you out there are listening and you're a little uncomfortable with like, well, where are the boundaries? How do we navigate this? I understand that. Okay. I, I understand totally the hesitancy, but theology is a very creative really art form in so many ways. And there's a very long lineage of Christians and non-Christians thinking about what is God like? How do we understand this God? And then what do we do as people on this earth to make the world around us better? And I think at least my expression of Christian thinking really minimized that for me. It was more about, listen, we have this tradition. These are the boundaries and they're absolute boundaries, by the way. If you cross Mm -hmm. them, you're way beyond saving as a Christian. But more and more, I'm like, you know, these things are way more flexible than how I understood them to be. And that allows us to have a little more of a, maybe one way of thinking about it for the audience is imagine a canvas that has been filled, but now zoom out and realize that there's so much more canvas to paint, right? And we can reference what's already been built upon and think about, okay, this was really great. This imagery is really unhelpful right now. And we can, we can make new art and new ways of imagining what God can be like. So yeah, talk to me about theologizing bigger, like, like, how do you think about that when it comes to how you view God and, and how you navigate that in your life? Yeah, I think you did a great job of summing it up just now. The key <laughs> word here you. for me is always, <laughs> yeah, man. The key word for me is always going to be imagination. And I think that that is very central to this way of theologizing. The, the being of a theologizer is, is reengaging your imagination. And here's what I mean when I say that. When you talk about all the, the, this history of Christian thinkers who, who have been able to think outside of what where we think we have permission to go and everything, they kept their imagination. And we live in a world in which our imagination is strategically and gradually chipped away at. Mm. Think about this from the time you were a child, right? Like you, you, you have certain ideas in mind. If if somebody's handing out French fries and you see somebody gets more than you immediately. You say like that, that's, that's, that's not fair, right? Like, no, I need this. That's not fair. He got more than me. And very soon we learn that life's not fair. People tell you like, oh, life's, life's not fair. And so we accept certain things that go against the grain in us. And if you ask a five-year-old right now what they want to be when they grow up, they'll give you one answer. If you ask them three days from then, they might give you another answer. And that's because the the field is wide open in front of them. If you ask that same five-year-old in 13 years what they want to be, then you'll probably maybe get one or two answers from them. And the field has been whittled down some, right? The the things that they're able to see themselves doing have been narrowed because that's what the world does to us. It whittles away at our imagination. So much so that if you as an adult, like I'm 33 years old, I'll tell you that I spend two hours a day just imagining things. You'd be like, you need to get a job. Like you were wasting <laughs> your time. It sounds childish, right? But at the end of the day, if you have been separated from your imagination, then you will never be able 
to see or conceptualize God for yourself. The only image of God that you can possibly conceive of is one that has been given to you if, you were, if you've been separated from your imagination. The reason that this is so critical to me is because imagination is one of the things that makes us human. If you take away that ability from us, then then we we get knocked down a few pegs on, on the animal kingdom chart, right? Like we're, mm. we're, we're not that special. There's a reason that like what humans build is far more sophisticated than what the rest of the animal kingdom builds in so many different ways because we have this power of imagination. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Bible tells us that it is humans that are made in the image of God, right? The same root words going on here, right? What if part of the image of God is the capacity for imagination? It is not until God creates, right? God sees things, God speaks things, and then they happen. And in that process, God creates humanity, and it says that humanity is created in the image of God. And then God goes and gives the humans the ability to to steward this, this creation. And I think that as we are separated from our imagination, we are dehumanized. That's part of what death looks like. That's part of what what happens in the garden when they listen to the serpent. They're they're separated from their imagination. We're slowly dehumanized. And if there is anything that happens tangibly in the process of salvation, it's this rehumanization element wherein we are reunited with our imagination. Mm. I'm not making this up, right? Jesus has a whole conversation with Nicodemus where he says that, in order to see the kingdom, you must be born again. We got to hit the reset button on this thing called life, right? Like we got, you have to see, <laughs> Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to such as these. And he talks about children. It says, unless you see the kingdom with eyes like these, like you, you won't get it because it's the children who have the relevant imagination that they can see the fullness of what God is doing in ways that we can't because we've been so constrained by the hardness and the cruelty of the world around us. Right. And so when I'm talking theologizing bigger, no, this is a process in imagination. If it were not for the traumas that we've been through, if it were not for the things that we've seen in the world that have robbed us of faith in our fellow human beings and and the faith in their capacity to love and to thrive in all of these things, what might we see? as possible. Where might the love and power of God lead us if we if, if, if we hadn't seen all of these other things? That's part of what happens in salvation. We're made, we can't be conformed to the patterns of this world. We need to renew our minds, right? We have our minds transformed. Romans 12 too, that whole passage right there. A lot of this for me is about our ability to imagine who and what God is and what God is doing right here and now. What is up? This is Trip from the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast, and I am pumped to tell you about Project Amplify. That is something that the new evangelicals are up to. It's a new endeavor. And guess what? I've been a longtime supporter of TNE, and when I heard about Project Amplify, I'm like, oh, junk. That sounds great. Why? Why? Well, when Christianity shows up in the public square, I usually have a hard time associating its content with, I don't know, what Jesus said and did and endured and testified to in the one he called Abba. Well, if you want people that are deeply engaged in communicating in our current medium and you want to support it so that, so I don't know, maybe what pops up in your algorithm doesn't make you want to hurl and call Jesus and say, hey, hey, you need some new PR, then uh, maybe you should be be a member supporting what's going on at Project Amplified. I'm excited about it. So check it out. 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my conversation with John Dominic Cross in a, a last year, and he said something that just changed my life. He said, you know, metaphors create reality. How we think yeah. about things metaphorically create realities here on earth. You know, if someone thinks that you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, you're going to be out of that community. There's a reality to it. And that comes from the imagination, right? Metaphors yes. and how, and how we dream about things using that, that, that imagination that makes us really unique among the animal kingdom, like you said, has the power to bring heaven to earth or hell on earth, right? Absolutely. Because that imagination can also be used for some pretty damaging things towards our fellow human, towards the planet. And, and even with how we think and conceptualize about God, I, I love that angle because I think in 2024, there's a lot of people. I mean, listen, we're, we're watching what's happening in Gaza. We're watching what's happening in America. We, we know that um, we're on the brink of potentially having a really dangerous threat to our democracy in the White House at some point. And I think a lot of people are just kind of they're exhausted and their imagination is is drained. They, 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 they have lost the spark of dreaming of a better world, right? And there's so many factors that go into that economic factors, wages, all this kind of stuff. And so I'm not here to downplay very serious concerns and, and individual needs. That imagination is also can be such a source of hope for us to dream about yes. creating a, a world that is better by thinking about metaphors that then create realities. And I just think that's a really powerful idea that this audience and the work that we're all doing together is to try and push for a better way forward in our faith. That imagination piece is so necessary of what can be possible if we work together to make it a reality. It's got to be, right? And and I think sometimes imagination can be an act of resistance. I think there's a reason Jesus, who speaks of the need to be born again and this idea of rebirth, and, and Paul talks about having our minds transformed or renewed or whatever. But Jesus also says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Yeah. One of the things that is stolen, destroyed, is our is our hope, is, is our imagination. Like, there's a lot of things to be depressed about. The thief comes to do that intentionally, right? But Jesus says that I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And one of the things that Jesus wants, I believe, is for us to retake this thing. And like I said, metaphors create realities. What might we be able to do? Jesus who said that greater works than these shall you do. Jesus who's, who says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound, uh, bind in, in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you lose will be. We have the ability to change so many things if we would just see them. I believe in them. And, and, and there's a lot of power in our ability to imagine and then walk into these things. And as we're praying on earth as it is in heaven, we real good at imagining what heaven looks like for us. But do we have the faith and the imagination necessary to believe that that can happen right here and right now? Yeah. And I think I think the biggest challenge for me in that process is not is not dehumanizing people who seem to want a different kind of world. You know, there are, it just seems like there are people out there who really are convinced that, that, that God's calling on their life is to minimize the rights and well-being of others. So that way they're in control. And, you know, there's, it's a real, and maybe I, this is a great landing place to get your final thoughts on this, but there's a real fine line for me between doing everything I can to oppose that political agenda and the laws and even the cultural framework that, that, that say, X person isn't welcome here. X person has to be, you know, minimized and dehumanized versus trying to think about, well, how do you change the minds of those people if you can, right? Because they're still humans. I don't want to engage in the same level of dehumanization that they engage with. And I want to invite them to use an imagination for a better way forward. But also when they're 
targeting people who are friends, who are fully formed humans, right? In the Imago Dei. It's like, man, it can be tough to find that balance of I resist what you're doing, but also I have an obligation to love my enemy and to invite them into better ways forward. What What's your thoughts on, on how we navigate that going forward? So at the risk of, of sounding like I'm stuck in 1998 <laughs> at a Promise Keepers conference or whatever. Oh, you just said Promise Keepers. <laughs> Shit. The, the, the question I got to ask in a situation like that is, what would Jesus do, right? And I think the answer, if the Gospels are to be trusted, uh, the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if the Gospel that Paul preaches that upends Paul's entire life is one who uh, was zealously defending uh, one way of approaching the law and then does a complete 180 and, and speaks of another way of living into Christ, the answer is that we have to resist a way of relating to God wherein we heap shame upon shame on the most vulnerable people among us, right? And we have to resist that pretty stiffly. At the same time, we got to leave avenues open for people to understand that there is more to God than practicing our religion. I think this is an interesting thing that occurs. At no point do we see Jesus, or Paul for that matter, discourage a Jewish person from practicing Judaism. We do not see them discourage a Jewish person from observing the Torah or the mitzvah. We don't, we, we don't, we don't see that occurring. What we do see, particularly from Paul, is an insistence that people who do not live that way, people who are not Jewish and do not observe the Torah, we, we do see an insistence that, that those people are left to relate to God on God's terms. It says that them practicing your religion is not going to do what you think it will. You, you get to be who God called you to be. You can practice your religion as you see fit. But you turning those people into you is not their path to salvation. That's not how that works, right? And I think we see Jesus to a much lesser extent saying much of the same thing. Like we, we see the Samaritan village where he says that a time is coming where it won't matter what mountain you're worshiping on. God is looking for people who are worshiping spirit and in truth. Now that's a huge statement for the simple fact that the entire Old Testament is about the centrality of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That is where God's presence is. Jesus says there's a time coming where it won't matter which mountain you're going. And all of that to say that it is perfectly fine to worship God as you see fit. It is perfectly fine to honor your tradition. It is perfectly fine to honor your orthodoxy. But what we need to understand is that when we try to transform people into us by, by enfolding them into our orthodoxy or whatever, we are actually working against what the spirit of God is doing in somebody else. It's Jesus who says that other sheep have I who are not of this fold, right? And, and so... I think one of the things that solidarity looks like while, while still holding comp compassion is, is letting people like, I don't try to talk conservative evangelicals away from practicing their faith as they see fit or anything. Yeah. But one of the things that I need you to stop doing is talking to me as if I am missing something because I do not live my life the way that you do. Snaps for you. That's right. You preach. Exactly. That is, I have said this so many times. 
My issue is not that Calvinists exist. It's not my issue is not that someone believes that God has predetermined them from the foundation of the world to go to heaven. My issue is that they treat anyone who sees it differently as not a real Christian. It's like, dude, have some theological humility. Like, think about for just for a second how deeply embedded the supremacy complex is, especially in white evangelicalism, when you have these theobros some of which don't even have a degree, and I'm one of them, okay, so I admit that. And they're online like, oh, no, this person's a real Christian. This person's not a real Christian. Oh, this person sees this passage differently. They're they're just a a heretic. Like, are you kidding me? Do you realize that Martin Luther was considered a heretic by the Catholic Church? They tried to literally kill him. Like, we've been playing the heretic game forever. Can we have some intellectual and theological humility that maybe this tradition is bigger than any single one of us? As we navigate a very metaphysical concept of God and the divine and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, who, by the way, I I affirm a physical resurrection, make no mistake, but I don't see the guy. He's not embodied around me. Okay. He doesn't exist in the sense of how he existed in the gospel accounts. We are doing our best, but certainly it's a wide, complicated tradition with many different perspectives flat out. Absolutely. And I think we got to relieve ourselves of the need to be God's defense attorney and police force at all times. Right. I don't think there is a such thing as a threat to the gospel from an ideological standpoint. I think that there is a threat to the gospel from inside of the church. Right. (laughs) I think the threat is, is us lacking humility wherein we um, start trying to do, God's job ourselves. But yeah, no, my, my whole thing here is that uh, I think as we lean into imagination, one of the things that this has done for me personally is show me how big and expansive God is. And when I think about that, I feel smaller. That's humbling, right? Totally. I think there is um, something about imagination that makes you a better neighbor, that makes you a better disciple. And that inherently brings you closer to Jesus, who, you know, Philippians 2, 6 says that having equality with God did not think of that as something to cling to, but took on a human body on the position of a slave, right? Like humility is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I've been a drummer now for 30 something years, 20 something years, and I the more I play, the more I hear other people play, the more I'm like, geez, I know so little about drumming. I just feel this tiny. You know, I'll hear another drummer play a beat. I'm like, I would have never dreamed about about phrasing this thing this way. And like, my God, it's the same thing with God. It really is for me. Where it's like the more I study and the more I listen to people like yourself and others, I've had the opportunity to interview hundreds of people who know their stuff. I'm like, my God, I know so little. I know so little. And that that should keep us grounded and, and humble before we start critiquing and calling other people heretics who aren't real Christians. So I it totally should. agree. It should. Because I, I know I know a whole lot, right? Like I, I got the degree. I've, I've been to conservative evangelical seminary. I've been to mainline historically black seminary. I've, I've, I've done I've done the work. I put the work in. I know I know a lot, but I still know so little. Right. I really do. That's right. And I'm fine with people 
calling me a heretic or whatever, that, that's perfectly fine. Everybody is somebody's heretic. The only difference between a heretic and a prophet is time. That's Bishop E. Fletcher <laughs> or whatever. I love That's good. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that I, I, I do wish is that the people who regard me as a false teacher, the people who regard me as a heretic, would do the right thing and leave me alone. That's it. So, so, so yeah. we, we can experience shalom uh, if, if you would just stay over there. Right. That is a You're perfect. That's a perfect note to end on. Leave us alone, <laughs> Pastor Trey Ferguson. The book is Theologizing Bigger: Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. Great to have you on the show. Let's keep in touch. There's a lot of work to do together as we help people find better paths forward in their faith, rooted in the inclusive love of Jesus for all. It is great to have you. Thanks for your time. It means a lot. Where can folks find you? Do you have a public presence? Are you on Threads or Instagram, TikTok, etc.? I'm everywhere you can find people. The best place to find me is at PastorTrail5.com. As all of my social media is linked there. I'm on Threads. I'm on. I'm never calling it X. I'm on Twitter. I even got a Facebook page. I, I didn't like that place, but it's starting to grow on me a little bit. I got a Facebook <laughs> page. You can find all of that there. You can find my Substack, the co-host of the Three Black Men podcast. I'm the host of the New Living Translation podcast. There's a bunch of different places that you can find me. You can get regular content from me, and you can find all of that at PastorTrail5.com. Love it. Pastor Trey, great having you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for your time. <laughs>